John chapter 11. We're working our way through the Gospel of John, which is St. John's historical theological biography of Jesus of Nazareth, the most important figure in the history of the universe. This morning may get a little bit sensitive, so we're going to spend time praying in communion, and I just want us to posture our hearts with an openness and an honesty. Some of us are pretty raw in our Christianity, and I think we need to talk about that. There is not a soul who will be spared suffering, doubt, hard times. God is intent on working good through that. But in the interim, it can be very disorienting and confusing. So let me pray for us, and we will get into our text for the morning. John chapter 11. Father, your word is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient for us. It gives us enough answers to provide enough light in the darkness to move us forward one step at a time. And so... Today, as we prayed this morning, Lord, for the soul that maybe is so full of doubt, so disoriented by their suffering, so challenged by some of the philosophies and worldviews that contradict a biblical worldview, today may they experience a sense of release. And I pray that our church would be a space where souls can explore their questions and wrestle with their doubts, and endure their suffering, not with people counseling them on how to get out of it, but just weeping with them and crying with them. And I thank you in my own journey, God, that you have brought me through so many cycles of deconstruction and reconstruction, and I feel ever more safe in you than I ever have in my entire life. And so do that today as we make disciples. May neighbors be a place of deep discipleship of the soul, an invitation for the lost, that we might know you as our God and our Savior and our King. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask you to come and reign on this earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. There's a lot of talking to do these days about the steep decline of Christianity in the West. You really can't find a poll, be that Barna, Pew Research, all of these polls that come out that does not definitively show the rise of the nuns, not N-U-Ns, but the N-O-N-E-S, those who no longer declare faith in any organized religion. There's agnosticism, there's atheism, there's secularism, there's spiritualism, but the marks of Christianity and the power of Christianity in Western culture is steeply in decline, and church attendance is in steep decline, and Bible reading and prayer, and all the marks of followers of Jesus are disappearing from the fabric of the society that we live in. Now, the technical term for this process, for the individual, is sociologists and theologians call it theological deconstruction. Deconstruction. I'm sure if you've been part of the church for any amount of time, you've heard that term, deconstruction, or maybe you're in the midst of it right now. Deconstruction occurs... When one's faith is challenged, challenged and doubts begin to multiply. And as those doubts multiply, what once was concrete, dearly held, non-negotiable beliefs are jettisoned, abandoned, or denied one by one. Deconstruction is the loss of faith. It's the leaving of one's soul from the church and Jesus himself in some cases. As I see it, in the lay of the land, there are two types of deconstruction that Christians undergo in this life. There's intellectual deconstruction, wherein the worldviews and the philosophies of the world around us challenge our biblically-based beliefs. 
And so doubts begin, and we begin to deconstruct what we once believed to be true from the Bible, and we line up more in accord with what the world is teaching. There's also, and this is much more common for all of us, what I call emotional deconstruction. Emotional deconstruction is when some sort of pain enters our lives, and it is so disorienting that it causes us to cease believing that God is there, and that God cares, and that God is good in allowing what has come to transpire in our lives. Life is hard, and horrible things happen. Unmet expectations, experiences of loss, unjust pain, suffering, all of these things, they spin us out with doubt about the truth, and they cause us to question the goodness of God or even the existence of God. And these times of loss and suffering, this emotional deconstruction, it creates this downward spiral of uncertainty and cynicism and anger and sometimes a full denial of the faith. And my dear friend, maybe you are smack dab in the middle of it this morning. Though you have a smile on your face, everything's great. (laughs) But you know in your soul, you're spinning out. I had a vision this morning in pre-gathering prayer of one of those spinning wheels with the circles of color in it. And the color was being torn off the spinning wheel as as it was spinning. And it created this black hole. And then I had this image of our church and the souls of this church needing to jump into the black hole, terrified that it would annihilate them. But jumping through the black hole actually brought them into an experience of God's kind of kaleidoscopic color. You could feel and see the colors and sense and smell the colors on the other side of the black hole. But first there had to be the stripping of our falsely made colors in the spinning wheel. I would wager to guess, I'm no prophet, but some of us this morning, there's serious doubt being raised about certain teachings in the Bible. You're wrestling through the LGBTQ questions. You're wrestling through the science and evolutionary questions. You're wrestling through the questions of the authority of Scripture and the authority of the church and the authority of society. You're wrestling through the political questions. There's a lot that is challenging our faith in these days. Maybe you're in a season where what you thought your life would be, I'm in my mid-40s, this is very true for me, where what you thought your life would be is not at all what you thought it would be. And so you find yourself questioning, whoa, God, wait, hold on. Are you good? Maybe there's some confusion and you're beginning to ask, did I mess up? Did I miss my calling? Maybe just the sheer tonnage of chaos and injustice over this past year has you asking, dude, this is not a blessed mess. This is just a mess. I'm not sure there's a God overseeing this whole thing. Because it's, it's bad. It's really bad. Friends, the story that Weston read for us, the story of Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, it truly is a beacon of hope. It is a bulwark of truth in the midst of all the lies. It's stability in all of the instability. Because within this story, within this narrative, we can actually see God behind our pain. And we can see a process for deepening our faith rather than denying our faith and the restoration that Jesus will eventually bring to all the souls who will stand fast with him through thick and thin. He will accomplish their deliverance and their restoration. Let's talk about the God behind our pain from this text. Our story, of course, begins with this family. We don't know a lot about this family other than they were tight with Jesus. They were all close friends. We have these little snippets, these pictures of their life together. And they were in this relationship with Jesus that was familial and friendly all at the same time. And then Lazarus, their brother, gets sick. And so the sisters send for their friend Jesus, bearing in mind that they know Jesus has turned water to wine. 
They've heard the stories about their friend multiplying multiple fish and loaves to feed the masses. They've heard about him healing the paralytic. They've heard about the blind being healed by Jesus. So they're like, our friend, our brother Lazarus is sick. Let's get Jesus in on the scene. He'll pray for him and everything's going to go great. Their expectation of Jesus was one thing, but from the story, we see that their experience was something categorically different. Can I just ask you to consider that? Have you ever had an expectation of Jesus and you got on your knees and you begged your guts out only to kind of have it belly flop right in front of you? (laughs) Am I the only one that that's happened to? Maybe these three? You see, it's common to the human experience. It's common to the Christian experience, friends. So instead of Jesus rushing to the scene, John tells us specifically that Jesus waited two full days Instead of instant answers to their prayers, their brother dies. And so begins the spiraling out, the deconstruction of their faith. At the root of deconstruction is suffering that does not align with our beliefs about who God is and how he acts in the world. And we need to recognize there is an ongoing war of two narratives vying for our belief about the pain that we experience in this life. Two narratives warring with each other. The first is God's true narrative on our pain and on our suffering. And the second is a host of false narratives, all of our own making and our own writing. And they are at war constantly, vying for our attention and our belief. Let me explain. Jesus of Nazareth taught that God is always working behind and in and through our pain. God is not the cause of our pain, but he does work through it. In other words, God did not kill Lazarus. Sin and sickness and maybe even Satan himself are on the scene here, unseen. But what God did is he chose to use Lazarus's death behind the scenes, and work it for a greater good for Lazarus, for Mary, for Martha, for all who are watching, and for us today, reading the story of this man's life. God's narrative on pain, from the the passage that we're reading, God's narrative on pain is twofold if you're taking notes. Number one, God's narrative, the true narrative on pain is this. Sometimes God and Jesus, the Son of God, will be more glorified by loss and suffering, sickness and death, being allowed than by instant healing, deliverance, and provision. Jesus specifically says, Lazarus is sick and he's going to die, and that will bring more glory, more honor, more fame, more declaration, more clarification on who I actually am in the world. Verse 4 of John chapter 11, if you have your phones or your Bibles. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness is not unto death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. God did not cause the sickness of Lazarus, but he did use it to bring glory to his son Jesus. And of all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John is the most unapologetic and the most bold in continually saying through each of the stories that God uses the worst of the worst situations to bring about his glory and our good. Not enough food, that's a good thing. Jesus is going to multiply the fish and loaves. A blind man becomes a case lesson on how to truly see in the spirit. A sick brother dies. Somehow, someway, God behind the scenes is going to glorify his son in that death. 
And number two, and this is the most important, and I'm going to keep my emotional thing in check because I will weep my way through this sermon. I finally believe what I'm about to tell you. God's true narrative on your pain and on your suffering is that he loves you in the midst of it. Jesus loved this family, and he did what he did. He allowed Lazarus to die because he loved them. I know that doesn't make sense. Read with me in verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus loved them. That's the capstone that John gives us. Jesus loved them. And then that little tiny word right there, so, in verse 6, so, some of your translations are going to say, therefore, that's a very powerful Greek conjunctive word that carries causative meaning in it. Because Jesus loved them, he heard that Lazarus was sick. And because he loved them, he stayed where he was two more days. Because he loved them, he waited and did not answer their prayers. Are you all tracking with that? Jesus did not meet their expectations because he loved them. The text is telling us that Jesus let Lazarus die because he loved them. What God is allowing in our lives right now, this past year, every single detail, what God has allowed has been allowed out of an infinite, unconditional ocean of lavish love for your soul. That is God's true narrative on your pain, my friend. God will be glorified, and God is infinitely in love with you in ways you cannot imagine, and he's working behind the scenes. If we lose that true narrative, if we lose that true narrative, then we begin to make up false narratives that draw us away from God instead of towards him. Let me just highlight a couple of those. Number one, there is a strong false narrative in the church today. By the way, this is Pastor Shua's stuff. I just cut and paste all of his stuff. Such brilliant stuff. This is just strong. There's this strong false narrative in the church today, and it gives us this subtle message, and sometimes not so subtle message, that one of God's primary, like God's top priority, is to keep you and I from all pain. That's the message that the church tends to give sometimes. God's top priority is to keep you from all sorts of pain. And so then this is what happens. Pain comes, and we're like, hey, whoa, oh, whoa. Why am I hurting? This doesn't make sense. I thought that God was on my side. I thought that God was against all pain. I thought that God was there to keep me from all sorts of pain. And so that suffering begins to spin us out. And then we suddenly begin to believe, am I being punished? Am I being abandoned? Is God there? Deconstruction ensues. The false teaching that God only exists to keep us from all pain makes God a liar. And then when pain comes, our hearts are absolutely demolished crushed, annihilated. God's true narrative, his glory and his absolute love for us reminds us that anything and everything we're going through, God's primary goal isn't to keep us from pain. It's to keep us from the ultimate pain of separation from him. In fact, what we see in the story is that it was these women and their pain that drew them closer to Jesus. They flew and ran to Jesus because of their pain. And that process is what brought about intimacy with him in relationship. Friend, you and I must be continually rewriting our narrative in accord with God's glory and his love in the midst of our pain. Number two, though, 
This is the tough pill to swallow for all of us. We have to recognize that our sinful natural bend is to be our own gods. And so in our little realms, the little kingdoms that we create, where we sit on the throne with our little crown and our little scepter, we create these boxes around God. And we create these boxes around the way that we think God should work in our little kingdom, in our little realm. And we control everything, including the ruler of the cosmos, because we're afraid of what might happen if we don't have control. And I want to tell you that this way of interacting with reality, this way of interacting with reality around us, it's based in complete fear, and it's an act of complete futility. Our little scepters are plastic, and our little crowns are cracked. We have no control of anything. So when pain comes, we are confronted with the reality that we do not have control over anything, that we don't have solid gold crowns, and our scepters don't work. And so we deconstruct. We fall apart. Jesus' narrative calls you and I, in the midst of our pain, to trust more deeply when we are out of control. It's a tremendous level of surrender that we hear as hyper-individualistic, exclusively humanitarian, we can save ourselves, tighten up our bootstraps, tighten up our belts. We're Americans. We're going to get it done. We're performers. The narrative that we are not in control, we must concede our control to Christ alone in our suffering is terrifying. And it creates such a level of vulnerability. And it makes you and I truly Christian. To be truly Christian is to concede all control. And to cease with this fabricated life of a false kingdom. To stop living in this act of futility. And to recognize reality. And as we're going to see from these women, to fall at the feet of ultimate reality. Who is going to be glorified and who loves you more than you could ever imagine. Please hear this. As we fall prey to these false narratives, God continues to tend to our hearts very carefully. When we point the finger and we cry out, we shout, we scream, we accuse him. God continues to fight by the Spirit, through the Scriptures, in the community. He continues to fight for us to know him more and more. And God does not defend himself because he doesn't have to defend himself. God will be God regardless of the ways we try to innocently or subconsciously and sometimes aggressively and very consciously take him apart. No one can deconstruct Jesus. No one. You and I, we can deconstruct ideas about Jesus or teachings about Jesus, which, by the way, 100% of our friends who have left the church and denied the faith, they are deconstructing teachings and traditions and interpretations of Jesus. They're deconstructing some incorrect teachings and applications and traditions and interpretations of Jesus. They're deconstructing some correct interpretations and teachings about Jesus, but they are not deconstructing Jesus himself. To say we are deconstructing Jesus is like saying, well, we're going to deconstruct the Son. No, we can deconstruct wrong beliefs about the Son. We can deconstruct wrong beliefs about how the Son affects the world, but we cannot deconstruct the warmth that's coming down upon our planet right now and the existence of the Son. We cannot deconstruct Jesus, and that is tremendously good news for us. Do you see that if you're spinning out this morning, and I'm only saying this as a fellow sojourner who has suffered so horrifically and been so confused in my life, I'm trying to tell you that we spin out because we decide that God absolutely cannot be glorified in what's happening. 
we personally make the decision, there's no way God could bring good out of this, and we decide to believe that. I am telling you that I've done that many times. And we also deconstruct because we decide to stop believing that every event of our life, hidden behind it, is a God who loves us behind com- beyond comprehension. Just wrestle with that. Just wrestle with that. There are decisions being made in our deconstruction about God's glory and his love for us. So what are we to do when we're hurting and the process is just tearing us apart? How do we deepen and develop our faith versus denying our faith? We'll learn from the sisters. And it starts with this. Both of them run to Jesus. I mean, they, they run to Jesus, not away from him. In our story, what we see them do is their first response when they hear that Jesus is in town and and Lazarus has died, their first response is, well, I pray. Their first response is not, well, I prayed and my brother died, so I'm out. I'm done. I'm not going to. Instead, in their pain, they go directly to Jesus. And their prayer with Jesus is horrifically raw and honest. They don't run to Jesus with this kind of set of check boxes and eloquence and kind of moral code keeping. They run and they just give it to him as it is. And each of these women, their process, what we learn from them is we can see how whether you're intellectually deconstructing or struggling or you're emotionally deconstructing, what we see from these women is that they develop their faith intellectually and emotionally from their two different stories. Let's just compare and contrast them for just a moment. Let's start with Martha. We'll pick up in verse 20 of John chapter 11. Watch what she does here. Intellectual deconstruction, reconstruction with Jesus. Verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Some commentators read accusatory language in that statement. Some commentators read a pleading. Some people read Anger, I think it's all of that. I think Martha is just letting Jesus have it. Everything, the fear, the shame, the confusion, the hurt, the anger, all of it. If you would have been here, this could have happened. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. There's still just this fragile little thread of faith, what Jesus would call a, a, a smoldering wick, a broken reed, and he's about to tend to this. Jesus said to her, hey, Martha, your brother's going to rise again, and I want you to see this. She answers with this great theological truth. She says, I know he's going to rise again at the resurrection at the last day. Martha had her Hebrew scriptures dialed. She had her Jewish theology of the eschaton, the coming in days, the resurrection of all. She had it nailed. So she's like, Jesus, I know, but I'm hurting right now. That's what I read into this text. I know I've got the right theology, but what am I going to do right now? He's dead. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this? And here, John, at this point, this is one of the clearest confessions of Jesus as Messiah that we have at this point in the entire Gospel of John. She says, yes, Lord, I do believe that. I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God who's coming to the world. In other words, she concedes. She says, okay, I've got my good Jewish eschatology, and you're telling me something else. You're telling me that there's this relational reality that I can have with you, that you're the resurrection in my pain, that you're the life in my pain, and I'm to look to you right now. I believe that. I believe you're the Messiah. I'm confused, but I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you are the one that was sent into the world. In Martha's case, 
in this nuanced discussion about the resurrection in the end days, Jesus guides her from this kind of healthy theological concept of the future to a much more relational understanding of himself in the present moment. It's beautiful. She's theological. Jesus wants her to be relational. She's got a good hope of the future resurrection, but Jesus moves her to trust him in the moment as the relational resurrection and life in her present pain. Now, now Mary, now Mary. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, she says the exact same thing that Martha said, verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But did you guys catch what she did at the very beginning before she even asked the question? This woman runs up and she collapses at his feet. Mary, through all the gospels, she's always at the feet of Jesus. She's always sitting there learning. She's the contemplative. Martha's the doer, the goer, the getter. But here in this place, this is agony. This woman just falls in an emotional collapse. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Shortest verse in all of the Bible. Jesus wept. Mary falls before him as an emotional wreck. And what we see is there's no intellectual banter about future theological concepts between Mary and Jesus. He deals with us where we are in our intellectual and our emotional deconstruction. With Mary, there's no Q&A here. What Jesus does instead is he just silently enters into her pain. He just cries with her. That's it. No counsel, no correction, no grand theology, no conversation. He feels her pain and allows that pain to become his own pain, and he just simply weeps with her. This is the most profound mystery of all the religions. Christianity teaches that God clothed himself in humanity and suffered alongside us. None of us, not a one of us, and we have brand new believers in this church, and you just need to know up front, not a one of us will escape extended seasons of severe doubt and questioning and deconstructing. And not a one of us will be spared suffering that disorients us, confuses us, and feels like it's crushing us. In my own journey, 20 plus years now, I have been through cycle after cycle of both intellectual and emotional deconstruction. For years, I had a very solid theology but I applied it in a way that brought such damage to my relationship with God. I believed God was sovereign, and he is sovereign. He does control the details of all the world. But I translated it into my life of, okay, here's my pain. You could fix my pain. You're not fixing my pain. And then Dan just went off. (laughs) Rage, anger, tears, hurt, pain, shame read some more books, do some more apologetic work, study some more philosophy, come up with some semblance of answers to how could a sovereign God allow this kind of pain in the world and in my life personally, there's no way he's good or maybe the whole thing. I did that for years and years. And then I entered seminary and I came under the mentorship of one of my dearest friends in the whole world, Dr. Gary Bashirs. And Dr. Bashirs took this robust, thoroughly Calvinist young theologian and he, he just slowly and carefully began to remind me that God is in relationship with me. And he began to take 
what was a, a healthy theological concept and reframe it for me in a relational context. And so I had all these true ideas about God, but I was misapplying them in these untrue ways, and it was tearing me apart. And through Gary and the community and this long series of friends and all sorts of stuff, because I didn't run from Jesus, he was drawing me into a more full relational theology with him where I began to see through this lens that he is actually with me in my pain and with me in my suffering. He's not a puppet master just pulling the strings of my life. He's actually dictating this deepening relationship with me. And I cannot tell you how many times over the past 20 years I have just had to collapse at the feet of Jesus as a complete emotional wreck. (laughs) Over and over and over. And usually the cycle would go like this. Dan puts on his crown, sits down on his throne with his scepter and says, I don creation to do my will. And then it would not do my will. And people wouldn't do my will. And people didn't like that I wanted them to do my will. So then they wouldn't like me. And then I didn't like that they didn't like me. And then it would hurt a lot more. And then there would be a whole series of pain and tears and crying until finally my scepter would break. I'd cast the crown down at his feet. I'd fall down and I can't do it anymore, God. I can't do this anymore bawling my eyes out. And it's the strangest things. I can't tell you how many times, even from the earliest days of my Christianity, it was in those moments of just letting go and bawling my eyes out. It wasn't like I heard a voice. No scripture came to my mind. It's, it's as if I could feel Jesus's tears in my tears, him crying with me. I remember being a brand new Christian. I had driven up into the South Hills there in Idaho in my Jeep. And I was still dealing with such severe paranoia from all the psychosis and the drugs. And I wanted free. And I remember screaming, standing on my Jeep in the middle of nowhere in Idaho, screaming in the middle of the night, help, literally, help, and silence and screaming, where are you, help. And I remember falling on my Jeep, on the hood of my Jeep, and I remember bawling. And then just ever so softly, the sense that he was standing next to me crying. That he was angry and hurt about what sin had done to my brain and my body. I am far enough removed from so many cycles of such intense, dark days that I can see now. I can see more clearly that every one of those cycles has moved me from trying to control, trying to rule the world, to just surrendering at his feet. And over these cycles, every time, God has been glorified, and I have learned more deeply about his love every time, every single time. To where today, today, 44, in my right mind, cycles around church life, cycles around family life, cycles around friend life, cycles around relationships, all the cycles, intellectual, theological deconstruction points, emotional deconstruction points. Now I'm kind of at this more settled stage, a little more chill, where when things start to go wrong, I'm like, oh, okay, okay, here we go. Time to let go much more quickly. <laughs> time, to, time, to, time to read these Bible verses a little bit differently. I'm not going to smash my Bible verse into this and say, this is what this means. I'm going to be like, okay, okay, uh, okay. As soon as something seems like it's going to spin out, I find myself saying, oh, there's going to be some deeper love in this. It's going to hurt. Oh, man, this, this, this may hurt. But I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust. True disciples of Jesus, like Mary and Martha, they will always run to Jesus and end in dependence and humility. Do you guys realize that deconstruction is the most arrogant thing we can do? 
To say we can deconstruct the sun, not only is it futile and silly, it's, it's ludicrous, but it's arrogant. Deconstruction is just a mark of arrogance, but humility and dependence finally says, okay, okay, I don't know how to run the universe, therefore I fall at your feet. And if you, and I'm telling you, as your pastor, as a friend, as a fellow sojourner, if you will continue to run to him in your intellectual wrestlings and in your moments of emotional overwhelm, for me, for, for, for over a decade in Seattle, it was just overwhelming. Eventually, Jesus will glorify himself. The sun will come through the clouds and you will experience his love in ways that you could only have gotten a glimmer of in the disorientation. And so we need to close now. And here's where we close. I want us from the story to see how Jesus glorified himself with these souls and how he'll glorify himself with you and I. Verses 11, or excuse me, 38 to 40. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. He stinketh, as the King James says. For he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe? Didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you that if you would believe? Didn't I tell you if you would trust me? Didn't I tell you that I know you're hurting If you'll believe, if you'll believe, you'll see the glory of God. What we miss happening here is that Jesus comes to the tomb and the English translators, they're uncomfortable with what happens here because the actual Greek, the actual Greek deeply moved. In the Greek literature, that's the idea. It's used to describe a war horse, a war horse that's like, you know, snorting and like, I don't know, what's the word for it? Like hooving at the ground, whatever that is. There's some intensity here with Jesus being deeply moved. In fact, the word carries the intonations of a war horse getting ready to charge into war, okay? And so Jesus, in this moment, he sees all of this weeping around him and he sees your weeping and he like grows with anger and warlike power because he's preparing to bellow. He's preparing to crush death for the sake of the souls that he loves. He was preparing to charge death and absolutely destroy it. Lazarus, come out! This wasn't meek and mild Jesus. This was the Savior of the world saying, death, you will have no place in my people. No place. And there was rage in his voice. There was a war, and he was winning it for his people. And so in that single moment, Lazarus comes out and everything that was confusing was clarified for these souls and everything that was wrong in the world was made right. And in this specific story, Lazarus did come out. And now I know what you're thinking. We're all good, cynical Gen Xers and millennials and Gen Zs. And you're sitting there saying, my Lazarus isn't coming back from the dead, Danny. My marriage, it's over. It's not gonna come back. If you're like me, you had these dreams of what you were going to be when you're 30 and now you're 44 and you're like, oh, that's way in the grave. That's like way in the grave. That's never going to happen. I can't go back. I think for some of us this morning, you're sitting there saying, 
You know, I've taken every pill and the anxiety and I've been through the therapy and the depression. And I am worn out. I, I think my hope for joy is dead. This is what you need to hear and return to the true narrative, God's glory and his infinite love for you. Not all of our Lazaruses are going to come back from the grave. That's not what this story is about. John puts this story here to point us to the ultimate restoration of all things when the Lion of Judah will roar at death and all humanity will come forth from the grave. And so the Lion who raged and roared at Lazarus' death will one day rage and roar at all the death of humanity and to overcome it, he had to become the Lamb slain. The the lion who roars becomes the lamb who is slain in our place. And this is the greatest assurance of every true disciple of Jesus. In our intellectual confusion and in our deepest plane, the place to go to is the cross of Jesus, period. The cross clarifies everything. Every time I have tried to walk away from Jesus, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I think Christianity and the whole thing, I think it's all crazy. And I'm go marching off. Somehow, way, he kind of puts his arm around my shoulder and I find myself falling where? At the foot of the cross. If you loved me like this, if it took this for you to overcome my pain and my death, then I won't deny you. I will trust you here from the foot of the cross. As we get ready to come to communion this morning, would you just close your eyes with me and let me prophesy and speak over you for just a moment. God is not the cause of your pain. God is working behind your pain for God's glory and God is infinitely in love with you right now. God is calling you to wrestle with him intellectually until you sense him relationally, period. God is calling you to fall at his feet in emotional surrender and weep with him until your tears become his tears and his tears become your tears because he hates your pain. God is opening your ears to hear the lion roar as he rages at all that is wrong in this world. And God is seating you at the foot of the cross where the lamb was slain. And so God is commissioning you. He's, He's challenging you to just keep putting one foot in front of the other as you follow Jesus. We're gonna sing to the Lord now and we're gonna prepare for communion. We'll just ask the spirit to open us to to bring to the foreground of our minds that which he wants to heal, that which he wants to answer. And I want to assure you that I will never sell you a bill of goods, I hope. Some of the answers that you're seeking, you're never going to get, ever. God always gives us just enough answers intellectually to be like, that totally makes sense. I can't deny that. I got to keep going. And God always gives us just enough emotional comfort to be like, oh, I feel strengthened and I'm ready to keep putting one foot in front of the other. But even with Job, you get to the very end of Job and and God never tells Job, he never tells the man why he went through what he went through, ever. There is so much in this life that's gonna be pain and loss. But if we will come to the cross this morning, it it radically transforms everything. Let's sing and I'll come up and lead us in a time of communion.